addiction is not a choice that anybody makes, it's not a moral failure, it's not an ethical lapse, it's not a weakness of character, it's not a failure of will, which is how our society depicts addiction, nor is it an inherited brain disease, which is how the medical tendency is to see it. What it actually is, it's a response to human suffering. All right, all right, all right. Welcome back to the Buddhist Recovery Podcast here with Dave Smith. Very excited today to introduce Dr. Steve Danzinger, who is a long-term Zen practitioner who's worked in the addiction field for many, many years, is an EMDR trainer, therapist, Buddhist practitioner. This guy pretty much does it all. He's been sober forever. And uh, we talk about EMDR therapy, trauma, Buddhism, and all of those exciting things. So I hope you enjoy our discussion. And we'll see you around. Thanks. All right. Well, Dave Smith here with the Buddhist Recovery Podcast with my good friend, Dr. Steve Danzinger out in L.A. How you doing, Dr. Steve? I'm all right. How you doing over there, Dave? In Colorado. We're hanging in there. Yeah, yeah. Same here. Yeah. So, hey, I want to get right into the nitty gritty because uh, I think a lot of people are curious what you, you wear a lot of hats and, you know, recovery, addiction, trauma, Buddhism, mindfulness. Uh, where and when and how did you start to, when did it get on your radar that trauma was kind of a big player in the game when we're dealing with addiction? You know, I think it actually started with, uh, you know, the introduction to 12 step recovery when I was you know, 32 years ago now and doing the steps and really doing the fourth step and noticing that, uh, you know, a lot of what seems to have ailed me was driven by things that happened to me as opposed to some kind of uh, fault or, or flaw within myself, as it were. And so that kind of started the ball rolling, but I didn't have those words for it back then. Uh, back then, 1989, 1990, people were not sort of equating PTSD or trauma with anything to do with other, other than combat or, you know, other really big T traumas. But then uh, in sobriety, uh, I ended up as a, uh, doing work as a diversity professional. And I would go into rooms and I would be witness to other people's uh, intergenerational trauma, systemic oppression trauma, you know, all those kinds of traumas that are what drive all of those difficulties that we were dealing with in those workshops. And so that also triggered for me like a really deep memory of when I was a kid and, and sort of understanding further uh, my Jewish history and history of you know, the Holocaust and, and all these things that I had uh, a visceral relationship to, but really hadn't thought about in more than a minute. And so that was that. And so that really then I was like, huh, no wonder I had some cocktails kind of thing. Yeah, and right. then <laughs> and then when I got out here to L.A. and I did the. Uh, uh, the, uh, you know, the whole thing where you move to LA and become a therapist. Right. Um, and that was back in 2002 is when I got here. Uh, and I went into a master's program, not that long after I, uh, I discovered, uh, you know, sort of that relationship more deeply. And then I really discovered it when very early on in my therapy career, I got trained in EMDR therapy. And I was basically face planted into what would be the rest of my life. <laughs> and how long ago was that? What year was that? That was 2005. Okay, so that's 15 years anyway, then some. And back yes. in 05, this wasn't, this was kind of not, this was a, maybe a training. EMDR was not on the mainstream at all at that point. It was probably one of those things that people were like, oh, yeah, yeah, whatever. It was it was getting more mainstream or at least within the trauma community, which was still not mainstream. You know, it was sort of uh, going to the head of the class. And and at the same time, I, I had the good fortune of, you know, there were many different people in the history of EMDR therapy and its development. And I happened upon uh, two Andrew Leeds who uh, trained me and he was someone who very early on was like, oh yeah, this is a complete psychotherapy. This is an approach that can d deal with more than just 
you know, PTSD. And so he told me that he said that to me and I was working in a, in an addiction treatment center. And he said, oh yeah, you know, you can be using it here. And the clinical director there was using it, you know, pretty as a frontline therapy. Uh, and then, and then AJ Popke, who was uh, the first person that Francine Shapiro ever waved her fingers in front of, wow. you know, like she tested it out and he just happened to be someone who worked with addiction and with veterans. And so he became uh, the sort of the leader, uh, the thought leader, action leader in using it with addiction. And he lived over the hill from the treatment center. Mm -hmm. So I spent all my early EMDR time, EMDR therapy time with with Dr. Leeds and uh, Dr. Popke. And so and, 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 and AJ was just like, yeah, this is this works with addiction. Let me show you. And so that started my journey. My journey. I was like, I at the same time I was uh, intuiting slash sort of experiencing that EMDR therapy was steeped in mindfulness. And I was wondering why no one was talking about it, and I found out later why. But um, I I I was like, oh wait, this is mindfulness too. So why, why did you? What did you find out? Oh, so what I found out was you know Francine Shapiro, uh, uh, who passed away a couple of years ago now. Um, actually, two years ago now, I think. Um, and she, uh, uh, she found EMDR therapy. She discovered or, or noticed the effect of the eye movements and then developed the therapy uh, in the midst of her uh, cancer journey. You know, she was working on her cancer. And so we didn't know this. And you and I you know, found it out at the same time uh, through the same source is that uh, she actually got mindfulness training from Stephen Levine and right. she, and, and, but she kept that close to the vest when she uh, developed the therapy because she didn't want the B word getting out there, you know, like uh, she didn't want any word. She didn't want the M word either. Right. Cause back then uh, what we discovered by backtracking was that in 1989, when she first published uh, as uh, eye movement desensitization, there was one article that year in the clinical literature on mindfulness. So she was all, and right now there's about a thousand a year. So back then she already was like, yeah, if I wave my fingers in your face and you move your eyes back and forth, you're going to feel better. Like she was already, you know, playing with fire in terms of people believing her or, or taking her seriously. Back then, if she had thrown mindfulness in the mix, they would have just, you know, thrown her out of it. Yeah. And even at the time when I was trained, 2005 was sort of the tail end of a, a three or four year period where people were just attacking her. You know, like just they're, they're like, oh, you, you know, the, a lot of it was territory stuff. A lot of it was just I can understand how they'd be like, no, this doesn't make sense to me, you know, upon surface examination and. So, so the entry point uh, for you was definitely clinical training, master's level kind of. You can't, that's where you got the initial. You know, you didn't. You got it from that world, getting your PsyD and stuff. That's where that came through. The the trauma piece, yes. Yeah. That, that, you, that, that, and I suspect you instantly applied it to recovery to Buddhist practice. You probably must have had some internal, like, okay, this really makes a lot of sense. Oh, pretty pretty quickly, it all started to like. The, the, I was like, oh my gosh, this is all interlocked, you know, and and I and now I've been introduced to to a little bit of the missing piece for me in terms of doing clinical work. I I, I could you know uh, mindfulness and Buddhism and uh, anything and everything else that I learned along the way to help people in this particular way was you know like I was, it felt like eighty percent there or ninety percent there. And then this just locked it in uh, be between, you know, the the way the therapy is delivered and the model, you know, the theor theoretical model that informs it. It just closed the gap on, uh, you know, the relationship between trauma, mindfulness, trauma recovery, uh, and then the difference between trauma informed care and trauma focused care. Like, right. Yeah, that's what I wanted to talk to you about because I had the good fortune of being with you about a month and a half ago and I got to see mm -hmm. you do your presentation. And I think a lot of people don't know this. Can you just walk us through like 
How does trauma impact the brain in terms of memory, limbic system? Like what actually happens there? So uh, if it's okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go through the, the Four Noble Truths portal to get sure. to, the, to the brain. Very appropriate. Uh, since we are at the, yes, I, I know that I'm on the right podcast for that. Yeah. So, um, so Four Noble Truths you know, is a lot of things. And one of the things it is, is a diagnostic, right? Sure. And, and that diagnostic is, the diagnosis is, is suffering, dukkha, suffering un, and unsatisfactoriness. And I bring this up because it's really important in terms of the, the development of this whole idea of trauma-focused care based on Buddhist uh, principles and psychology and, and then mindfulness practice, is that the diagnosis is suffering, but it's also unsatisfactoriness. In other words, there's a continuum of human experience, which is all just like unsatisfactory, right? I woke yeah. up this morning, kid was like, I don't want to wake up and I don't want to go to camp. You know, and, and so that's not World War Three, but I could make it World War Three, right? And so right. everything in life is just available to that. How? Why is that? Well, the second truth says that uh, we have this craving, clinging, aversion, uh, and um, uh, attachment problem, and so uh, that is a problem of the brain. It's a problem. It's a you know, it's got a lot it's of layers. A reaction to, it. to the conditions which is, you know, the limbic brain and the reptilian brain sort of doing their job, which is to react, you know, not necessarily respond. And the hope is that, you know, we'll be able to get to the insight brain, uh, you know, that the material or the memories or the experiences will make their way out of the limbic, out of the reptilian, over to the, the neocortical regions, and, and we'll be able to make meaning and have insight and, and, and do all the things that we can do as human beings. Uh, a lot of times, if not most of the time, that doesn't necessarily happen, right? Or especially for people who end up suffering from uh, addiction problems or uh, PTSD or any you know, depression, anxiety, all of this. So then the third truth says we need to kind of, you know, in, in EMDR terms, the thir third truth says we need to reprocess right. that material. And the reason why it's called reprocessing is because it's already been processed. It just wasn't processed all the way through or well. So and it, it gets stuck in short-term memory. It doesn't get kicked back to long-term memory. And so yes. even though it happened 15 years ago, it still, it still feels like it's very now. It's, it's in the now. And, and those memory systems, the short-term memory systems, don't have the same long-term storage aspects of like sense of time and place. And, you know, it's just sounds and sights and sensations and, you know, it, it fragments. And, and then those fragments are available for future, you know, triggering of anything that even sort of remotely resembles that either internally or externally. So is it safe to say that initial trauma installation, it, it not only does it not get processed, but it stays reactive? Hundred percent. And it's yes. easy to reactivate it because it's right front and center in your cognition. Yes, and that part of the brain becomes overdeveloped in as much as the more material, the more difficulties that get stored there in that way, the more triggers are available. And what happens is when I have my new experience, that reinforces the truth or validity in my sort of system so of the reactive, those previous ones. The reactive habits, they evolve in a sense and they become more destructive the more adverse life experiences you take on. So the trauma yes. actually, it's like a virus in the computer. It, it recodes itself and expands and does all that jazz. Yes. It's, it's, uh, it, it's the virus in the computer. It's the proverbial snowball. Wow. And, 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 it, and there's no... Uh, you know, so we, I guess we have to find a way to melt the the snowball, and we have to, or we have to, you know, get the the. Uh, you know, the, the this is where I'm an old man, and I don't have the computer technology right, to yeah, finish. Yeah. So the, basically, what yeah. you're saying is mindfulness, psychotherapy, yeah. talk therapy, do four mm -hmm. steps, all that stuff. None of that stuff is going to be able to move that data into the long term storage where it belongs. Exactly. Well, you know, mindfulness, you know, as a practice of the body, as my first Zen teacher used to say all the time, right, has some capacity to either uh, drive it or at least initiate it. Or, uh, but, but the problem is, is that as, you know, we know now, I think we knew it 
before, but now people are starting to talk about it, write about it more, you know, that if you sort of present mindfulness to somebody who's still in the trauma state and you're not giving them options and you're not making it so that their eyes can be open or, you know, whatever it is that they need to not go down a trauma rabbit hole, um, then the mindfulness is, doesn't work as well. And again, that's, that's what started to come together for me in, back in 2005, that the, the EMDR and mindfulness uh, and, and Buddhist, Dharma kind of need each other. I, I kind of look at mindfulness and EMDR therapy as Dharma, but, um, but they, all, they all need each other to complete each other. In, in a sense. Well, so before we go too too far with this, because I think this is sure. good, talk about the third noble truth, this ceasing or this nibbana, this cooling. What happens for that allows that experience to happen? Is that the reprocessing? Is that would those be synonyms? Yes. Yeah, so uh, you know, uh, Jamie Marich, my my uh, colleague and co-author of multiple books. Uh, you know, we just finished a book that's coming out in September, Healing Addiction with the EMDR Therapy. And in it, uh, we, uh, the chapter on the reprocessing phases of the therapy is called uh, uh, Shapiro's Special Sauce. And the reason is that those uh, phases, phases three through six of the therapy, do the work in short order that the person has been prepared for which is to move the material from the short-term memory from the body to the neocortex. And at first, what, what Shapiro thought was just happening was kind of like, de- she originally called it eye movement desensitization, um, right? By the way, it doesn't have to be eye movements. It can be any kind of back and forth. It can be uh, sounds. It can be vibrations. So any, what they call, is that what they call bilateral stimulation? It bilateral stimulation, yes. be It can be visual. It can be auditory. It can be physical. Yes. It can be any sense sphere, except for probably hard to do with smell and taste. And that's what the discovery has been over the last 30 years, you know, as people have, you know, Shapiro and then others, you know, researched and have done it. And, you know, we have the anecdotal, we have the research. And the, the, so the eye movement was, that, that's part of sort of uh, the difficulty of her publishing as eye movement desensitization. Uh, and it was kind of like she was branded as it were. Um, but uh, she thought in the beginning, it was kind of like Valium without the side effects, right? She thought like, oh, it's desensitizing it. The person's not as bothered. It was only a, a, a year into it, let's say, where she started to notice people having these aha moments that l- looked very much like this cooling, you know, which very much looked like this uh, personality transformation, personality reintegration, uh, you know, Steve 2.0 emerging, you know, like all so, of these yeah, things. So in the four truth, we're talking about the ceasing of the reaction and yes. then the arising of the Nibbana. And it starts to happen sort of automated and people go, aha, well, this is weird. I'm not overreacting to a situation that I've overreacted to most of my life. Yes, and and I I don't any I don't any longer sort of separate that from the rest of my mindfulness practice. Sure. Or you know it, it's that it's a mindfulness practice that has those results that you just described. Well, the interesting thing is if you look at this, this you know these Pali words are so hard to translate. Mindfulness mm-hmm. comes from sati, and really mm-hmm. the, the the word that does the heavy lifting in sati is actually memory. Yes. Yes. To remember, to recognize that which has been said and done long ago. There's, so it's interesting that trauma and memory are so correlated and that actually, you know, it, but to translate sati as memory doesn't really work, but we have to understand that that was the primary cognitive function that the word is associated with. And, and you know, with other words too, you know, like the idea of, 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 of um, the idea of mind that we have today, right, which we automatically point towards our brain, when in fact for, you know, millennia, it really referred to the heart mind or the, you know, like the, that combination that there's no uh, separation there. Uh, there's another teaching too from, uh, from the historical Buddha that, that looks at the intoxication, right, like lists out the things that happen because of intoxication and why we want to have the fifth precept. Right. And 
And what what he says is, it sounds like he's describing someone on the corner of like, you know, Parkman and Silver Lake, if that's a corner in Los Angeles, you know, at 2 a.m., right? It's like you've lost your, you're hanging out with people you wouldn't ordinarily hang out with, right. you know, you've lost your reputation, you're, you're, you've lost your wealth, you know, all these things, this list of the, those consequences. And then the last thing is, you know, and this is, this is the important piece is uh, l- lack or loss of insight. Right. Right. And so, you know, intoxication is like a purposeful forgetting, a purposeful uh, sort of uh, desensitizing, uh, you know, making it so that, you know, we feel better temporarily uh, in order to not feel the pain of this ongoing trauma. You know, and this is where it starts to all connect in that way. Well, I think and, you're pointing to something important with this whole chitta, mm-hmm. mind, body, heart thing mm-hmm. is that, and you and I talked about this recently, and this has been a new finding, I think. In, in one of my courses, I have this thing, cognitive science point called the mind-body problem. Is the problem mm-hmm. in the mind or is it in the body? And of course, you can't draw the lines between the two. But in mm-hmm. recent years, like, you know, somatic experiencing, a lot of, a lot of the trauma mm-hmm. stuff has been around nervous system and the yep. body. And they've kind of chosen to ignore the brain and it sounds like coming back to this, actually, a lot of what can be done in EMDR is a software thing. Yes. And uh, Bessel van der Kolk, who's been a, a proponent of EMDR therapy since the beginning, he did one of the first studies on it. You know, even today, today, right now, he's very, he's like neat, more than knee deep in the psilocybin research. Uh, but when I went to hear him speak not long ago, like just before the pandemic kicked in, um, I uh, heard him say, you know, like psilocybin's good, uh, but it could go wrong if it's not done correctly. And EMDR rules, <laughs> you know, yeah. like I said, it wasn't those words. Um, but you know, uh, the the idea being that uh, Van der Kolk, amongst other things, talks about you know uh, top down, uh, bottom up, and technology processing, right? Like that. There's three pathways, and that a lot of the more somatic therapies are very focused on the bottom up. And then the cognitive therapies are, are all on the top down. And then technology includes medications or, you know, phased therapies like EMDR. So EMDR therapy addresses all three. It's, so in that way, or that's been my experience of it, I, I don't, I'm not trained, let's say, for, for example, in SE, but I was an SE client. Um, so, and I noticed, you know, that, you know, sort of pointing towards the body, pointing towards the body, uh, when in fact, uh, you know, things are, there's some stuff stored in the cognitive area and, and it's it, the, the need is for everything to come together and to be able to be more uh, equanimous, essentially, uh, with each other. Well, the Buddha said, you know, the mind is the forerunner of all things. Mm-hmm. So even, even the mind proliferation is actually pre-thematic on some level. So it makes sense yes. that we would be able to go in both doors. But one thing I think that's also interesting is when you look at East versus West, mm-hmm. in the West, we're all about alleviating, alleviating symptoms, yes. stress reduction. We're like, mm-hmm. okay, well, let's just make things more manageable for you. Mm-hmm. Well, if we look at the East, if we look at Buddhism, Buddhism is about eradicating the cause. Mm-hmm. Let's just get this thing out. And mm-hmm. it seems to me like a lot of the Essene, a lot of people I've worked with, they do better. It does help, but it seems more of an alleviation symptom than an actual eradication. And also being in the chair of EMDR, it seems to be that EMDR is really going in there and cleaning some shit out for good. Is that safe to say? Yeah, you know, uh, it, 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 how rare for me to say something like this uh, with you too is, right, is it's the middle path. It's kind of like in between the two in a sense or, or a, a combination. Uh, Jamie and I use the term both and a lot in, a, in, in our writing. And... Uh, you know, I, I love that I have access to all the things that I've had access to in terms of like learning and teaching and, and, and ways of life. Uh, you know, in the Buddhist sense, I can't remember how long ago it was. I, I heard a, a talk. I think it was about Roshi Joan Halifax as opposed to her saying it. But it, they were talking about uh, how Roshi Joan at a certain point went to uh, Roshi Bernie and said she didn't want to use the uh, word extinguish anymore. Uh, in the in the four great vows, um, and he's like, but wait, that's the word. And and Roshi Jones said, no, I, I think it should be transformed. And and that's I believe that's you know at uh, Upaya, I think that's the word that's used in the four great vows. And that really resonates with me 
from my experience working with people in EMDR therapy over the last 15 years and delivering it, you know, mindfully and, and with these mindfulness principles and the Buddhist psychology in place is that Shapiro said in her writing that that's what's happening is that, um, that things are transformed, that it's not surgery. And, but, but when it, it kind of, it can look that way because of how, uh, uh, overwhelmingly, you know, uh, transformative the the experience is, and and how the person now feels and acts, and you know, lives in the world. So you're talking about the middle way between eradication and alleviation. Yes. Well, that's great. I appreciate that perspective because I think, you know, the word transformation gets a lot of airtime in the Buddhist world, but I think people don't realize that generally, generally speaking, transformation is a painful process. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think that the transforming is is the way to think about it. It's not that the reactivity or the tanha or those second noble truth theories go away, mm-hmm. but they get introduced back into into the system and they get transformed in a way where we're better able to manage them rather than mm-hmm. kind of ruling us. So if, if that's what you're saying. So it's like not like you're ripping the trauma out with a scalpel, but you're reintegrating it back into the system where the individual just does much better. Yes, reintegrating it, allowing for that uh, part of the brain or, you know, just just to put it in that perspective or that part of us that's able to 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 remember and say, oh, that happened and it's not happening now. Like it's not men in black. It's it's that kind of thing where I can now look back upon it. I can make meaning from it. I still have my opinion about it. Yeah, that was awful. Right. Because, you know, being able to look back at something and go, that was awful allows us to to now. OK, so now what? You know, like how how can I end that kind of suffering in the world for for others, for all beings? Well, the other thing um, I think that's important here that you get from the Dharma that we don't get in our culture is, is thinking about impermanence or Nietzsche as atemporal or thinking of the mm-hmm. timeless Dharma, mm-hmm. because really in the Dharma sense of seeing things time is not even a thing we just people just made that shit up so we could get the meetings on time yes and so part of the transformation process i think is is getting these memories in these situations integrated so that in in a george haas sense so that we have a coherent narrative Mm -hmm. and we can know the sequence in which things have happened so things don't arise in the present moment that don't need to be there Exactly. And, and, and what, what doesn't happen is we don't lose our capacity to take care of ourselves with those parts of the brain that are designed to take care of us, like in an emergency, right? Like I, the, the, one of the examples I give to trainees when I'm, uh, you know, training people in clinicians in EMDR therapy is, you know, com- combat vet, uh, here's a car backfire in the street ducks for cover because they, they have the untreated PTSD. They're thinking, like you're saying, you know, I'm back wherever it was I was in combat. It's, it's happening now. When I then uh, get treatment and I'm doing better, car backfires in the street. My amygdala isn't, isn't turned off, right? Because that would be bad. Like I need to, you know, like loud sound. So, you know, like the, the, the startle response will happen, but it won't start the whole you know, the whole faulty narrative of I am in combat. And so then it's uh, whatever uh, transformation has happened for that person and whatever resources, you know, whatever tools or whatever, you know, ways that they're able to, you know, sort of uh, cycle down off of that startle response uh, can be, you know, put into gear because they're, they're able to have agency over the reaction. The, the thing that's so mysterious about all this, though, that I find, and nobody really, and I don't think anybody's done a good job of pointing to this, is that you're actually transforming a process that's going on backstage. Because the person who, the vet, the military vet who hears the car backfire isn't doing all those mental gymnastics, right? He's mm-hmm. not going, oh, yeah, this is just that, and it's not about the combat. But those those items, those processes are happening precognitive, or they're happening somewhere back in the system that they're not choosing to have that experience, but something right. got rewired. So to me, like, nobody does a good job, I don't think, and maybe you can talk about this. Where the hell is that, and how does that work? So, 
I want to put it in the framework that you laid out earlier about the second factor of the path. Right. Right. Like that intention. And, intention. And and be and so what EMDR therapy and, and other, you know, other effective therapies or modalities or just things that we do day to day, uh, you know, build this new different wisdom. And, you know, we're setting intention, uh, you're pointing out, you know, we're setting intention all the time, right? And in between our intentions are like a gajillion micro intentions, right? Like I, I set an intention, even if it's a split second uh, before I do anything, before I say the next thing I'm going to say. And so you described very well, right? Like it's not happening consciously, but it's happening consciously, right? Like, in other words, or there's more conscious ability to take information from wherever it's coming from, whether it's coming from the body or whether it's coming from the limbic brain and be able to be with it as opposed to thrown about by it right. is, you well, know, the interesting and, thing is you're talking what you were really talking about the five aggregates, which is mm -hmm. Dharma 101 that ironically, nobody seems to know what the hell that they mean. Mm -hmm. But we're, you're talking about, you know, there's, there's, there's perception, which mindfulness mm -hmm. does a great job and EMDR rewiring, reperceiving. But this yes. puzzle word they call in Pali Sankara, which is an aspect of intention, mm -hmm. which is the mind to do. And uh, Ajahn Sachito talks about trauma and these things as being a Dukkha Sankara. Mm -hmm. which is that that's the initial installation. There's a habit pattern that gets formed. Mm -hmm. As it grows over time, as we talked about later, it becomes a Tanha Sankara. And what we want to do is we want to bring it to a Nibbana Sankara so that the stimulation of that aggregate doesn't become over hyperactive. It's learned how to cool itself down. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're bringing me back to my... My Zen days, which, right. by the way, I'm I, right. That's what I'm sitting again these days. Is uh, Zen? I've been really. sitting Zen too, and the Zen people do talk about I the heard. aggregates a lot, actually, which I appreciate. Yes, when when they do talk about anything, right? right? So, I, you know, my, uh, you know, I went through a period of koan study, and I, I, the the best way I can describe it is that the koan was uh, was there for me to rewire. You know, to uh, in a sense reprocess through uh, the prism of the koan, and the koan study along with zazen really it kind of face plants you into cooling. Uh, you know, you know because it, well, with the point with there's nothing else to do but just calm the fuck down. <laughs> exactly. No, that's it. That's it. And 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 the focus on samadhi. You know, at first, you know, as, as someone, I was very new in recovery when I when I was introduced to Zen. I was like four months in recovery. Uh, you know, I was like, you've got to be kidding me. You know, like, how am I going to 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 do this? And they they just, you know, the folks there just said, just follow these simple instructions. They didn't give, you know, in Zen, they don't give a lot of instructions. As a matter of fact, um, I don't know if you're familiar, but uh, Junpo uh, Dennis Kelly uh, was the head monk there, and he was uh, he became a Zen teacher himself. And he just passed away uh, about a month ago, and so I started. I sort of went and looked and found uh, you know a Junpo Roku, you know, that had some of his teachings, and I didn't realize that you know my first lesson in sitting was one of his like primary teachings, which was. You know, the first time I was told how to do Zazen, he just said, sit down, shut up, don't move. <laughs> and apparently he taught that all the time. And I was like, okay. And then, you know, shortly thereafter, it's kind of like, well, here's, here's some other instructions. Here's some other encouragement. There's a lot of encouragement, right? And in the end, you know, very early on, I experienced, you know, samadhi. I experienced, you know, this coolness, this this uh, rest or tranquility, and and or you know, and, and and that shifted the way my mind worked. And again, you know, like and and I was ready for it. And you know, I, I, as a therapist and as a therapist who works with mindfulness and Buddhist practice, you know, I don't I don't say sit down, shut up, don't move to very many. You people. do, but you just say it very nicely. I, I'm very very <laughs> different about it. Yes. Let me ask you this because I think you know. 
I've done a lot of work, you know, in cultivating emotional balance and the emotional side and really what I would call, and I would even at this point call EMDR a Western contemplative wisdom. Mm-hmm. We have Eastern contemplative practices, Western and that it turns out the great vehicle for most of these things is Buddhist meditation. How yeah. much of a leg up and how much of an advantage does the Buddhist meditator have when they go into an EMDR therapy versus the non-Buddhist meditator? This is awesome because you're the first person who ever asked me that directly as opposed to my having to like, you know, point it out on that way, like way ahead of the game. Like it's, it's amazing. So I can, I can tell you this, that, that mindfulness, Jamie and I wrote a book, EMDR therapy and mindfulness for trauma focused care. And in that book, we proposed that uh, mindfulness is laced throughout the eight phases, right? Most people, if they have any sort of idea that it might be uh, part of it are focused on the phase two, the preparation steps, you know, like the learning how to resource yourself, self-soothe, take care of yourself. But it's, you know, it's, it's pretty much through the whole process. And so, um, so when we're reprocessing, uh, Francine Shapiro used this language uh, of what are you noticing now? And notice that. And so when I'm in phase one and two, in the preparation phases, in the history-taking phases, if I have to spend a lot of time teaching a person what notice that means, I have to take a lot of time. I can do it, and we do it. Well, it's just so a what, mind, I mean, that's just a mindfulness technique that you learn at the first fucking mindfulness class you ever take. And notice so they're breathing in versus breathing out. Yes. And then what – so that's why the, the Buddhist practitioner is at a – gets a head start because if it's a Buddhist practitioner, and again, this is just my, my experience in my office. If it's a Buddhist practitioner in particular, they tend to have done a lot of the preparation work in addition to just learning how to breathe in, breathe out, notice that. And then when we get to the reprocessing phase, they truly understand at the deepest level what we mean when we say notice that. Like that has been ingrained in them and they just didn't know that it was going to help them so much in the EMDR therapy process. And then the other thing that uh, is helpful from, from that perspective, and I'm, I'm thinking of this right now because I have like two, two clients in my practice right now who, you know, came front loaded with years of Buddhist practice. Right. And so, uh, and I just, you know, we, we got to the reprocessing more quickly they were able to develop insights uh, more quickly. They were able to integrate the experience in the therapy room into their day-to-day lives. Let me ask you this. Part of, the, part of mindfulness, of course, we again, now we're back to the mind-body problem. Knowing sure. the in-breath, knowing the out-breath is one thing. But there's also like in the third foundation of mindfulness or what I would imagine, what do you notice now? Part of that is being able to witness a mental event. And in that terms is of a memory or terms of yes. a thought or terms. So I would imagine a lot of that reprocessing, re, how much of being, how much is the skill of being able to witness a mental event play into this kind of work? Uh, a lot. And, and especially in the reprocessing phases. And, and it speaks to why it's so important to do this work with someone in the room with you. Cause uh, w- what happens is, is that we prepare together. And then my, pr- my primary role in that event Uh, in that uh, reprocessing is to hold the space so that the person in front of me, one of the things Shapiro said was the best clinical tool that I have is the associative memory networks of the person in front of me. So what we've prepared to do is for me to kind of like not exit stage, right? I'm very much there. I'm a presence. I'm holding the space. I'm witnessing. But more than that, I'm, I'm facilitating a natural inborn, you know, like, birthright healing process um, that comes from the ability to witness or to uh, to notice or to mindfully track or uh, just uh, allow for the impermanence of the the work of the mind. And it just so happens that, uh, you know, with the, this protocol, the EMDR therapy protocol, it it really allows that to happen in short order where like the, the knee bone was connected to the elbow bone. And, and I, I love doing this work. Cause I'm like, Whoa, that's cool and weird, but, and then it's gone. Right. Then, then it's like, we're on to the next thing. 
So one of the instructions we give many EMDR therapy clients when we're about to start reprocessing is it's like you're on a train watching the scenery go by, you know, just watch it go by. Because that, that's been my criticism of insight meditation communities mm-hmm. and secular mindfulness is they, they tend to think that this mindfulness of the mind or the ability to went, met, to witness a mental event is like maybe an advanced practice that you get to later, which I've always thought was mm-hmm. a mistake. And I think that being, and I think that in the parlance of Buddhist liberation, one of the key functions of liberating ourselves from suffering is being able to witness a mental event without without clinging to it or without resisting it and without selfing around it. So mm-hmm. seeing a mental event as an objective mental event rather than this horrible thing that happened to me or, and that mm-hmm. seems to be, it doesn't, I've always been sort of a little bit concerned and surprised that that teaching I just pointed out briefly, doesn't get the airtime it deserves. Well, in EMDR therapy, at least the way that our team does it, uh, it does get the airtime, but and mostly at, through action, right? Like uh, I can give you an example, or it's sort of like many examples wrapped up into one. So many times, you know, someone comes in with a, a trauma, and we, you know, we use a zero to 10 scale at the beginning of the session, you know, it's eight, nine, ten. You know, ten is the worst you could ever imagine. Sometimes mine goes, act- to, mine goes to eleven. Yeah, of course. You know, well, why, why don't you just put the dial at no, no? I have spinal goes, tap trauma goes to eleven. <laughs> I, I have spinal trap trauma recovery. Yeah, like they, right. they, my trauma recovery. But um, uh, so it could be at like an eight, nine, ten, and you know, and it can go. So it goes down, right? And when it gets to zero, and then. Uh, uh, you know, if it does in that session, and then we do the next step, which is to inst- do installation of a positive belief, you know, so this negative belief laden, you know, horror show is now like a, a, a positive belief laden, uh, very different experience. And so many times you hear a description like, you know, what, what are you noticing now with this, the image that we started with that was at a 10 They'll say it's like a black and white picture. It's about five feet in front of me, and I see it, and I know it's me, and I know it happened. But you know, there it is, just looking at that picture. See that? Right? See the mental event hasn't changed. Mm-mm. The relationship, the transformation to that mental event is all is the whole game. Which is what the second truth says to me, right? That's right. It's like it's the re- it's not the pain of life. It's my relationship to the pain of life. That's right. And and, and I and I eventually get to a non-shaming way of telling myself that, mm-hmm. and then I'm and then and then and then I'm golden, right? It's not then my I have, fault that life sucks. Exactly, it isn't. <laughs> and life sucks for everybody. It's okay. Exactly. Let me ask Nasty you this about shirt. And I've never explored this, but I've always had this thought because when I think about installation or reprocessing Mm. or a lot of this stuff it brings me right to the teachings of the brahma viharas and Mm. i'm just wondering you know we use the phrases which is kind of a installation thing i'm just wondering what it would be like for someone to do classic brahma vihara practices whilst tapping or whilst doing some sort of left right thing to try to to try to install because if you're going to get install anything on the software that's the shit to install so I, uh, I actually have a YouTube video. <laughs> I don't have a lot of YouTube videos, but I have that one where I, in, I do uh, some bilateral uh, within a loving kindness meditation, which is a lot of what my clients do. And, and he, here's, here's something to frame it up for you, too, is that our, the, the way that we do EMDR, and I'm, when I, it's not the royal we, it's our team, we look at resources, right? That which we're going to use in order to prepare and also to to transition out of sessions and to use in between sessions as anything and everything that is either healthy and or adaptive for the client in front of you, right? And so that's why, you know, I, I just sort of jump right in and bring all the mindfulness and Buddhist practices that, that I can. Well, that just seems like the grand installation if there ever was one. Hundred percent. I have I have clients that you know, that's how they close sessions, right? They close sessions. They're like, I'm like, what do you want to do? And it's you know, I know that every day is different, so it might be different. I've got several clients who are like, you know, lead me in a in a loving kindness meditation in a meta meditation. So yeah, so so do you those feel like are that, the- is that do you feel like that's an organic outcome of the work? Is that or do you think like it just if you crunch numbers, that that's the tra- that's the trajectory in which people gravitate to. 
Well, and that's that, that's the integration of EMDR and Buddhist Buddhism and and all the rest of it that I that I ex- have experienced and propose is that yes, right that that it that it is part of the experience or it can be a driver or a participant in the experience of enlightenment. So there's no mistake that you call your program the Meta Protocol. <laughs> so that you know, I, that was a great gift from somewhere because I was I was actually at a at a an EMDR International Association conference, and I was like I was thinking, oh man, this should should be the Meta Protocol, and, and I just woke up with that, and then I was like, too bad it doesn't stand for anything, and then I was like, wait a second, <laughs> I was woken up with the mindfulness and EMDR treatment template for addictions, which I then. Uh, change to agencies because it, it's meant for, you know, it's meant for uh, agency work, right? It's meant for treatment centers and hospitals and all the rest of it. And it turns out that it doesn't have to be addiction for it to be helpful. Right. But uh, addiction is where it was born. It's a majority of the centers I work with. Now, are, do people are, have to have classic T trauma, capital T trauma to benefit from EMDR? Or could everybody do it? And uh, Yep. And, and that's the beauty of it. From the beginning, Shapiro said uh, she, she didn't called set it set out for this to be a trauma therapy, did she? She did. Okay. Well, what happened was is when she discovered for herself the effects, she went straight to she she didn't know what she was going to be doing with it, except that she thought, well, let's go for the gold. You know, if it's if it desensitizes difficult feelings from difficult memories, let's see if it works for PTSD. And that's why she pointed in that direction. And it, and it did work in that direction. And, but, but what she noticed from the beginning too, is like, it, it's not about the nature of the event. It's about what happened to the person. So from the beginning, she talked about big T trauma and small T trauma with small T trauma being anything and everything that brought any of these kind of symptoms or behaviors or beliefs, you know? Uh, and then she also noticed very early on that small T traumas are generally and often the real movers of people's difficulties as opposed to big T traumas or in addition to big T traumas. And so in 2014, she changed the language and said, let's just call it trauma and adverse life events. And that was a big thing for me as a Buddhist practitioner and, and, and teacher. I was, I was, oh, wait a second. That's, that's Buddhism. <laughs> that's uns- that that's, we were focused on suffering and now we're, we're like, no, unsatisfactoriness will do. And so the way we take history is in such a way that, you know, yes, we're looking to see what the big difficult things that happened were, but we're not focused on that. And in the end, like, for instance, I share all the time with, with um, trainees and others, I say, you know, when I was uh, going through my own EMDR therapy and I came across this, I'm not good enough part of me. uh, And, uh, you know, I've got other bigger things that kind of could, could have driven my, I'm not good enough, but through kind of floating back in my memory and looking for the smaller T stuff, I found this one time, you know, I was like pretty athletic when I was little and my dad was my coach and he was always supportive. And I had this one memory where I lost the game and he looked at me sideways and I don't even know how, if like, I don't know what else happened or didn't happen, but that was like stuck in my my no, emotional- I, I appreciate you bringing this up. This is important because I, when I went through trauma therapy, I went for it. The stuff, when we look at our history, the stuff that we think should be the big ticket items that really bother us often is not. And a lot of times it's a crooked look from dad. It's like, so a lot mm-hmm. of times when we try to self-diagnose ourselves in this way, we find that we're highly incorrect about what's really actually going on. Yes, that and thus the value of, of a teacher, the value of a of a clinician, you know, the value of a guide, um, because in the end, it, it it's you know self guided. It, it is about me. Like you are the expert on you. Like that's the philosophy with EMDR therapy. It's like you're you're the expert on you. I have this process that I can facilitate that allows you to heal that stuff the same way your knee knows how to heal when you skin your knee, right? Like when my kiddo. I know your kid's super active, so probably has a skin knee or two every now and then. Yeah, um, you know, like you know, the, so it's bleeding, and so I, I go over, I kiss the knee, I clean it up, I put on a band aid or a bandage. Uh, eventually, I take the bandage off because it needs air. I'm not doing it. I'm not healing anything. I'm providing the environment. I'm providing the conditions that allow for the natural healing that the body knows how to do. Uh, to well, that's occur. what the Buddha is saying, right? That we actually have an innate 
if I cut my finger and it heals, well, why doesn't that work for my emotional, psychological, mm -hmm. historical? Shouldn't that apply across the board? And it does. Yeah. You know, it does. It's just it, we, it, it, it. Some of us, some folks have the uh, enough resilience or sort of inner sort of knowledge to have it happen spontaneously on their own or or to have it with a minimal minimum of uh, intervention or or assistance. And the, the truth of the matter is, especially in this, you know, cuckoo bananas modern world with global pandemics and ra systemic racism at the, you know, completely exploding. It's always been there, but, you know, we're in this transformative time, uh, we hope, uh, that, you know, uh, people need help. Pe yeah. People need, people need uh, 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 to, it's, it's almost, it's like the equivalent of going on retreat, right? Like right. the meals are cooked, the time, the people take care of the bells and right. the rest of it so that you can have this experience. Right. And the bells and the cooks don't give you the experience. They just create the conditions in the container. They, exactly. So before we go, one last thing, I talked to Stephen Batchelor about this because I have, I have mm. an addiction course and it sounds like it's true for trauma. So the teachings, the understandings of trauma and addiction, it's all a second noble truth thing. Yes. I mean, it's, 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 Those are the uh, mechanics I, that provide the destructive internal mechanisms for why we suffer around these things. So re remember when you're newly in recovery and you, you were like, oh, my God, everyone's an addict. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and, and it's it turned out and then you're like, and then you calm down. Right. Yeah. And then and then looking at the second truth, third truth, the four, noble, you know, the, the truths. Um, it's like, yeah, everyone, everyone's an addict. I'm doing air quotes for listeners. Um, you know, everyone's, everyone is going through this dilemma of, you know, am I going to be uh, a subject of the craving, clinging, aversion realm? Uh, or am I going to find my way to having a different relationship, being able to transform or extinguish the as, craving? Yeah, as the Gil Fransdale book says, the issue at hand. Mm, mm. It is the issue at hand. It's the issue at hand. Yeah. And now, and we have, I, I feel like, you know, East, West, Indigenous, all, you know, there's everything is in the pot now. Uh, and, and I think we can transform or extinguish a lot of suffering. So nice. Um, it's exciting. Like, it's very exciting. I, I, I wake up in the morning every day just did like you ever ready think to go. you would? Did you ever think you would ever get, do you ever think that your mind would become the mind that it has? Uh, yeah, that's, that, that's a, we have to do another hour. <laughs> I don't, I don't, I don't know what I thought. I, I do know that I'm grateful that, uh, that I can't remember when it was, but you know, at some point it was kind of like, yeah, help trying to transform it where end suffering is the only kind of thing to do when you wake up in the morning. So totally. let's do that. Well, listen, it's great to have you today. Great to be here. Always good to see you, Dave. Addiction is not a choice that anybody makes. It's not a moral failure. It's not an ethical lapse. It's not a weakness of character. It's not a failure of will. It's just how our society depicts addiction. Nor is it an inherited brain disease, which is how the medical tendency is to see it. What it actually is, it's a response to human suffering. <laughs>